Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi, and welcome to Self-Improvement Atlas, the personal science insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm Marie Stella, your host from Melbourne, Australia. Let's start the show. Welcome back to Self-Improvement Atlas, the Personal Science Insights Podcast. I'm really stoked about this episode in particular because we are discussing working memory. And I don't know about you, but my memory retention is rather poor. So I'd really like to find out if there's any way to improve that. Today, we're joined by Howard Nussbaum, Professor of Psychology at the University of Chicago. Hi, Howard. Thank you for coming on the show. How are you going today? Good, Marie. Thanks for having me. Um, how's it like in Chicago? Well, my watch just told me I have a tornado warning. Oh, <laughs> well, we better we, we better get this going then. Um, before we get started, we'd like to get to know you better. So this is, have you met Professor Howard Nussbaum? Uh, what's your favorite book? Well, that that's a good question. When I, when I started thinking about it, I wasn't quite sure how to answer it, but one of the books that I like a great deal, one of the books that I give my students to read um, is a book by Allegra Goodman called Intuition. And it's a, it's a novel um, and it's about scientists working in biomedical research. And what's interesting to me is it's about um, sort of the human side of science and how people fail, make mistakes, have, uh, shall we say, competitive motivation, um, how they how they they try to get ahead and how that may lead them astray. That's really interesting. I love um, oddly like it sounds weird, but I do like to hear about why people fail fail or stories about people failing because I find it really relatable. Uh, <laughs> gives me comfort. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you have a favorite film? Well. I was thinking about that also. There's certainly a lot of films that I like, but um, a film that I w look at every year actually is a is a film by uh, Richard Attenborough called Gandhi, which is a kind of um, glamorization of uh, Gandhi's life. Um, but it's a very rich film in a lot of ways, and it's it's um, it's interesting in that uh, Gandhi fails a number of times in the movie and learns from those failures and, and, and gets better at what he does. And uh, seeing that in the movie is, is really impressive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I've heard of it, but I've never got around to watching it. Um, but it sounds like I do need to watch it now. Um, do you have a favorite <laughs> podcast? Yeah, I don't listen to a lot of podcasts. I guess I shouldn't say that on a podcast. Um, <laughs> no, that's so uh, fine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of the podcasts that I do listen to, or, or one of the, I guess it's actually a radio show that gets turned into a podcast, is This American Life with Ira Glass. Mm -hmm. um, there's an episode of it um, 
where he's he's got uh, Adam Gopnik who writes for the New Yorker, and Adam Gopnik is talking about living in Paris as an American, and his kid is born in Paris, and he looks out the window and he sees his kid in the in the in the park playing soccer very fluently and and familiarly, and becomes quite disturbed about the notion that his kid is becoming Frankified, and and he engages in a kind of process of trying to enculturate his kid in American uh, lore, if you will, in baseball. And it's a, the reason I love this uh, story is because um, it's about his kid hearing words about baseball, which he had never seen before, and coming up with understandings of words he'd not seen just by the descriptions his father's giving him. That's actually really, really, really interesting. Um, do you have a famous role model is there like a celebrity you look up to? You know, um, I guess I could say I look up to Barack Obama, our former president, uh, mostly because his house is a block away from mine. And um, and uh, when when he was running for president, I was actually on a um, I was on a grant review panel at the National Science Foundation. And my wife texted me that there are snipers on our roof because Barack Obama has now become candidate for president of the United States. And I don't think our house was ever so safe as it was when he was president. Um, but it, it was indeed his, his sort of characteristics of reasonableness and thoughtfulness as a leader. And the fact that he was never terribly foolish uh, and didn't do silly things, at least uh, without intending to, uh, that I think uh, are, are characteristics worth uh, appreciating. Mm -hmm. I think many of many people would agree with you there. Um, is there a course that you've completed recently? So I wasn't sure if you were asking me if I took a course or if I taught a course. Well, it could be either. Um, I think I feel like it could be either. So I, I've just completed two courses teaching. Uh, one is actually called Understanding Practical Wisdom. Um, and it's a course where we talk about the psychological and philosophical understanding of what it means to be wise as opposed to being smart or being clever. Um, and I also just finished another course called Cognitive Models, where we talk about the ways in which we can model aspects of attention, language, perception, understanding. That's really interesting. I. Like I, I, I can see what the difference is between being wise and clever or smart, but it'll be a whole different thing to actually go in, go on a deep dive into it. And that sounds very, I know I've said this word a ton of times, interesting, but it is, it is interesting. Is there another word for interesting that I can use? That's besides the point. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, thank you for sharing um, all that about yourself. Uh, now that we've gotten to know you, we can start learning about working memory, what we're here for. Um, first off, how do you define personal development? That's a good question. It's not one that I would say, I, I don't get asked that very often. Um, I think Defining personal development is is an interesting question because you can come at it in a lot of directions, a lot of ways. Um, from my perspective, one aspect of personal development is just knowledge, building knowledge, understanding 
more things. Um, but I think a more important aspect of personal development, I would call skills development. And I'm not talking about, you know, playing golf or tennis or computer programming, but the kinds of skills that you have in terms of uh, interpersonal interaction, in terms of planning, self-regulation, um, wise reasoning. Um, I think those kinds of skills that are not generally thought of as skills are the things that, that we develop uh, as a as a person, um, if you think about work by there's a, a, a famous psychologist Abraham Maslow who's not with us any longer, um, but he talked about this notion of um, of of development as an adult and how in fact we we engage in personal development. And I think his notion was that we sort of develop a strong moral sense and that we develop a set of ways of approaching the world. And I think that notion of of sort of developing those kinds of sensibilities and and ways of regulating and and making choices is is important to personal development. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. Uh, I think personal development. I kind of see it as like a soft skills. Like how would you be more kind or something like that, rather than how do you get better at a certain like a certain like you said hard skill like playing golf or something like that. Um, yeah, but before I get sidetracked, because I do that very often, uh, what do you think are some of the main challenges people face when it comes to personal development? Well, so in some sense, you made a dichotomy between hard skills and soft skills. And you talked about, you know, the kinds of psychological skills that one might have. Um, basically being generous. It's not easy for people to necessarily be generous if it doesn't seem to be something that's in their nature, if you will. And I think that um, that this notion about um, hard and soft is maybe reversed. It may be harder to develop those skills of, of sort of psychology and personal development than to develop skills of, of tennis. You know, when you start out playing tennis, you sort of say, well, I'm going to put my feet here and I'm going to crouch a little bit hold the racket this way, keep my hand on the ball. And you practice those things and slowly you sort of develop those skills. The way you develop those skills is pretty explicit. You know, there are teachers who know how to teach you those things. It's not clear we have the same set of teachers for how to be generous, how to be honest, how to be thoughtful, how to be empathic and compassionate. Um, so I actually think those are kind of harder skills for people. Uh, and I think that one aspect of that ask one aspect of that being a challenge for people is that people treat their own psychology as fixed. So they think, well, this is the way I am. I can't change that. You know, I'm a happy-go-lucky guy, so why should I get realistic? Or, you know, I'm kind of dour and Eeyore-ish and like, like, the, like the donkey in, in uh, Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> and how do I change that? You know, I, I just can't change that. That's who I am. I think that's a fundamental challenge in personal development is realizing that the way in which we think about ourselves is not a, is not a sort of true reflection of the ability of our minds to reflect and change on our own selves, to think about ourselves, to reflect on ourselves, and then to make changes in ourselves. Yeah, I agree with you there. Um, I think people also... Um, sometimes might not realize that just because you 
want like you change certain you want to like work on yourself or develop your personal growth journey it doesn't mean that you have to change into a completely different person it's just taking the parts of you that you think need some work and working on them um it doesn't mean that you have to go from from what's his name the donkey eeyore eeyore <laughs> it doesn't <laughs> It doesn't mean that you have to go from Eeyore to Tigger or something, you know. Um, but again, I digress. Uh, what does it mean to what? What does working memory mean, and how does it relate to personal growth? That's an interesting question. So, per, personal growth is sort of a big thing, right? Personal growth is like. How do we be a better person? How do I be a better person for myself? How do I be a better person for my family? Uh, how do I be a better worker, a better, um, more thoughtful friend to somebody? Those are big things. Working memory seems like a small thing. Working memory is sort of like, if you tell me a phone number while I'm walking across the room to get my cell phone, how do I remember it from here to there? How do I hold on to a bit of information? Um, and so they seem like very different kinds of things. The way that I think about working memory, and it's it's not it's not the way everyone thinks about it, it's not the way all scientists think about working memory, is I think that it's a fundamental part of your cognitive armamentum, the cognitive tools you have for doing things. So you have tools like attention. What do I pay attention to and how do I control my attention? What do I hold in mind? That's working memory. Holding things in mind is working memory. But by itself, it's just like a, a kind of snapshot of what you're conscious of. And you need to direct your consciousness at things in order to put them in working memory. So you have to focus attention someplace. And so let's say you're reading a book and you find yourself thinking about chocolate bars instead of what the story is. And then you find yourself napping. What happens is, you know, these thoughts come to you and you hold them in working memory and they disrupt what you're trying to do. Or you focus on what you're trying to do and by refreshing what you're thinking about, by holding that thought in mind, you're able to focus more strongly, more carefully, more selectively and make use of that focus in order to keep working on something. And so working memory does a couple of things. It holds the goals you have in mind. So for example, Let's say you're trying to learn how to play guitar and you have a goal that you're working on of trying to focus on your timing. You want to improve your timing in playing. Well, you might sort of like the melody you're playing, forget about the timing. Essentially, you haven't held in working memory the goal of working on timing and how to do it. So working memory has limited capacity, can only hold a few things in mind. But those things are important because they're related to the behavioral goals you have, the things you're trying to do and the things that you're looking at and keeping in mind as you're doing them. <laughs> I never thought of it that way. And it has opened my mind a little bit to what I have to do when I'm reading a book, first of all, because I'm really bad at reading. And maybe that's why, because every time I open a book, I'm just thinking about something else. And I skip through all the lines and I, I, I skim through pages and I don't even know what the what the, they've been saying the whole time. And then I have to go back and read again. So, yeah, I've learned something here. Uh, <laughs> so, 
Um, why do you think working memory plays a crucial role in personal development? So I think that it's so important in personal development because it relates to two elements that are critical. This notion of holding a goal in mind, what you're trying to do, and this notion of how you're trying to do it. So working memory is important to hold information in mind. And just as you were talking about the book, you pick up the book and you look at the first word and you, you're not engaged because you start thinking about something else. In that mo moment of mind wandering, when your mind wanders to other things, you need to sort of refocus to keep in mind that your goal is to read the book. And there are different things you can try to help your focus and to stay on task uh, at that point in time, but you have to sort of engage those things. What you really want to do, this is part of actually in meditation, what you really want to do is sort of bring your mind back to what you're trying to do. So the minute you find yourself drifting away, you need to come back to what you're trying to do. Now on the surface, that's hard to do. It's hard to do it in the moment. You're going to keep drifting away. But what's important and the reason that this is important is when you exercise that control of bringing your mind back to focus, it's not just in the moment that you're developing a benefit. It's control over your own mind that you're developing a benefit. So just like uh, when you're doing weightlifting, the first time you pick up a weight, your muscles are not all that strong. You have to do it every day. You have to do a number of reps. You have to exercise different muscles. That process of bringing your mind back, of taking control of where your mind goes, which people think, oh, my mind goes where it wants to, so I don't have any control over it. By taking charge of it, you're actually developing the kinds of skills necessary for its use in other kinds of things. And so it takes time, it's slow, but you're strengthening it. Mm -hmm. I'm definitely guilty of that statement you said just now, but the, oh, well, my mind goes where it wants to. <laughs> so yeah, I'm definitely going to try and take control of my wandering mind. Uh, it is a lot of work though, uh, and a lot of self-discipline because um, someone has tried to get me into meditation before and I've tried like a few times and each time it just doesn't work out. So at some point I was like, I'm going to give up, but maybe, maybe, maybe I'll start with a book. Maybe that, maybe that would be easier. Um, do you have any advice for how to maintain or improve our working memory? I know you already said something about like, you know, the whole, taking control of your mind, but do you have any other little tidbits of information that our listeners can use? So the techniques involved in meditation that you just alluded to, those are extremely useful. Um, not everybody wants to think about meditation. They sort of think it's a little woo-woo or strange or just too hard to do. And it's that hard to do part, which is the challenge that people face in personal development. And it's the sort of place in which you have to develop perseverance. So one kind of thing one can do is to practice meditation. But another kind of thing one can do is to just practice anything. So a paper just was published um, this past week, I think it came out, 
where they looked at people who were in their 60s and 70s. And what they did is they had these people um, learn to play piano. So they basically took music lessons and they focused on the music lessons. And I think they had to take music lessons twice a week and they had to practice three times a week for a certain period of time. And of course, it's no fun to practice piano when you can't play a damn thing. But the practice is what's important. And it turns out that in that study, after practicing piano for six months, people's working memory improved. And what's important about that is that working memory problems are significant as you get older. So if you think it's bad now, just wait till you're my age. It's going to get a lot worse. So it's a good thing to start practicing right now. But my point is that it doesn't have to be meditation. Meditation is a way in which you practice mental skills, systematically sort of developing self-regulation. But as you say, you could pick up a book and rather than pick up 100 Years of Solitude, which is very challenging where everybody has the same name, even picking up Dr. Seuss and reading it for a period of time and thinking about what it's really about, that is, looking at the words, reading the sentence, and thinking what good old Dr. Seuss was trying to tell us, even that done systematically would be important. So any kind of activity that you engage in on a regular basis, and I mean regularly, like uh, in the paper, they did 30 minutes of, of sort of practice uh, every few days, but you know, even 10 minutes every day of sitting down and reading reading the newspaper and thinking about it rather than just reading and moving your eyes over the words would be a way to improve things. Mm -hmm. um, are there any specific practices that you'd recommend to people to improve their working memory? You just, you did mention reading the newspaper or a book. Are there any other specific examples you can think of or that you use yourself? So for myself, I, I do things like keep mental lists and run the mental lists in my head. Um, but a lot of people do that in a kind of uh, obsessive way, and that may not be the best thing for everybody. And I also um, actually play guitar or try to play guitar 10 minutes a day um, just to make sure I'm... And I do that not just by plunking randomly, but I have a goal in mind. And I think that's important. It doesn't have to be playing the guitar or playing the piano. Uh, I think that if you say did the crossword puzzle systematically every day, that would be a thing one could do or Sudoku or some, some kind of uh, mental exercise. Now, what I'm saying is actually controversial. So there are claims out there that you can't increase your working memory. But what those claims are really about is... Um, Working memory is limited in capacity. You know, it can only hold so much. You know, you can hold a telephone number while you walk across the room, but you can't hold, you know, five telephone numbers and do the same thing. So working memory has its limitations. What's debatable right now is it seems clear that you can improve the use of the working memory you have by these kinds of practices. What's not clear is whether it will increase the size of your working memory to hold more telephone numbers. And I can't really, I can't really address that scientifically, except to say that I do think that these practices, whether it's you know reading systematically, getting a, reading harder and harder things. So 
start with Dr. Seuss, but then move on towards the 100 Years of Solitude, um, but doing it in a systematic way, doing it regularly, thinking about the text that you're reading, or doing crossword puzzles and getting them harder and harder, because, you know, I hear Mondays easier than Friday from the New York Times or something. Um, I think that kind of regular activity is important. And what it's changing is probably the way in which you use your working memory. But it might also be changing the amount of working memory you have. That's interesting. Um, I actually drew, drew a couple of them myself without realizing. I used to do the crossword, the New York Times crossword with my ex-partner. And that was, that was, I mean, uh, I was pretty, I was not good at it at first, but like, <laughs> it took me a while to get the hang of it. Um, but I haven't done it in a while. So maybe I could go back to that. And I do play the guitar every day. Um, so that's something I didn't even realize I was doing. Um, yeah. But I think Mind. what's important about the playing the guitar is to make sure that when you start playing, you have a kind of goal in mind. That mm -hmm. is, you're working towards something. So, I mean, it's really easy to just pick up the guitar and run through some chords and not think about what you're doing, but just, that's a nice melody or playing a, a tune you know. Working on improving your timing, mm -hmm. the metronome, or learning a more complex piece or trying something you haven't tried and working on it, I think is an important aspect of this. Yeah, that's a good point. I come to think of it, I don't really like I pick up the guitar and I just play aimlessly because I've been playing the guitar. I've been playing it. I've been playing it. Oh my God, I can't say this sentence. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> I've been playing the guitar for over a decade now um, and I'm classically trained. So my first instinct is just like, oh, you already know all these just play it for fun and then like you know gives you a bit of an ego boost but i guess now i'll have to definitely practice with the metronome because i'm really bad with that i feel like every time the metronome's there i i get confused because <laughs> i'm i'm always rushing uh so i should definitely sit down and do that um so that confusion is important because it's a signal that in essence you're not shall we say, sharpening working memory. Mm -hmm. So you get confused actually when you lose track of things. That's what it means to be confused mm -hmm. or to mix things up. And what that means is that you've sort of stopped exercising your working memory. And so sort of keeping the notes in sequence and in time and working at that. And you may not succeed. In other words, so part of the earlier challenge that we were talking about is it's hard. It's not easy. So what you want to be doing is persevering through, even though you're not doing what you want to be doing, because you're moving towards that challenge and, and working for the long term instead of the short term is what's critical, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I think, I guess in that sense, people can look at these practices and go like, oh, um, I can actually incorporate them into what I'm already doing instead of going out there and finding something that I don't actually want to do. Like, let's say if someone doesn't read a book or has no interest in reading, yeah, maybe do something else that um, you'd actually want to do uh, and that you find you personally benefit from. But also maybe read a little bit, just a little bit, 
it could it could could be good for you. <laughs> um, so now we're moving on to questions from the audience. Uh, this will just take about five questions or no, it's less. It's three questions and we have about 10 minutes. Um, so what are some specific ways in which working memory impacts our cognitive abilities and learning processes? So we know that there's a relationship between working memory and your measured intelligence, IQ. We don't know exactly what the relationship is between them. But if you look at an intelligence test, you look at how intelligence is measured. Intelligence tests do things like you look at a pattern and then you have to complete the pattern. So you have to hold images in mind and put and find the ones that match. That's using working memory. It's holding something in mind, moving something else into mind, and then comparing them and to try to find the ones that match. So one of the things we do with working memory is we hold something in mind while we're solving a problem or while we're working on anything. So, you know, if you are doing budgeting, for example, and you're thinking about one part of the budget, what happens is people double account themselves. They, they actually spend the same money twice because they, they don't keep the sheet in front of them. They don't hold all the parts in mind. Working memory is important to keep the critical elements of some problem in mind so that you can check them off, so that you can compare them. So that's a fundamental way in which working memory is used. But another way in which working memory is used, and it's, it's relatively critical in learning, is, as I was mentioning earlier, keeping a goal in mind. That is, remembering that you're working on timing with your guitar, and you're not just playing the melody you like. And that sounds easy, right? Oh, I'm just going to keep working on, on timing. But of course, holding that goal in mind means listening to the relationship between the metronome and the timing of the notes, and holding in mind what you just did so you can fix it in the future. So were you a little bit fast? Were you a little bit slow? Were you behind the beat? How do you want to come onto the, onto the metronome? And so um, working memory plays two kinds of roles. One is it's actually directly functional in solving certain kinds of problems by holding information in mind so you can compare with something else. But the other is monitoring of your performance while you're learning something and checking that you're improving in the way in which you, the direction you expect to move. Yeah, um, the yeah, that sounds like a lot of work, like I've said before. But I will, I will persevere. I will make you proud, Howard. <laughs> I I promise you, I'll send you a video <laughs> of me playing the guitar with the metronome. I will make you proud. <laughs> I have let down people before, not this time. Um, next question: How does working memory influence our ability to manage stress? multitask and adapt to new situations. So I don't I don't know if it helps manage stress. I guess one way it could help manage stress is that we feel stressed. A number of people feel stressed when they have tasks to complete and they feel like they're losing track of them. And so if in fact you can sort of monitor your progress and hold that in mind, that may be stress reducing, but in general, working memory is probably not the number one thing that that you use for uh, stress reduction. Um, what were the other two things that oh, you mentioned? <laughs> multitasking and adapting to new situations. So, in terms of multitasking, that's actually a key part of working memory. 
So even back in, I won't say it, when I did my dissertation, I won't name the year, um, I worked on people listening to speech in their in two of their ears at the same time. In other words, someone's talking here and someone's talking there, and you have to process information in both of those channels instead of just listening to one person. In order to do that, you have to hold on to the information that you're not processing while you're processing something else. So what we call multitasking, um, well, you only have two hands, you only have two eyes, you have two ears. That limits the number of things you can do at the same time. Um, but what you can do in multitasking is buffer one task while you're working on another task. That's exactly what working memory is for. Working memory holds on to the information for one thing while you're doing something else, and then you can come back to it. And in terms of adapting to situations, I think that comes under the heading of the learning that I was talking about before. So we do a lot of studies of people learning hard to understand speech. So imagine somebody who speaks English with a foreign accent. I guess that would be me in this circumstance. <laughs> so, so I will say, th so I, you asked me, what did you ask me at the outset? How's it going? How, how, how are you how going? How are you going? Yeah. How are you going? Yeah, yeah. We don't say that. Like, yeah. we'd say, how are you, how are you doing? So I had to think for a second, what are you asking me there? And in order to do that, I had to hold that phrase in mind and compare it to other things that I know and the situation that we're in. So we adapt to new situations by holding information in mind using the context of the current situation and comparing that to what our expectations are about that new piece of information. That's really, really, really interesting. I love that you used just like before as an example, uh, brilliant work. <laughs> um, are there any developmental stages or periods in life where working memory has a more significant impact on personal growth and learning? I think, unfortunately, <laughs> um, I mean, I think working memory is always important in personal growth. But we don't pay attention to it mostly because it just works. And for those of us who have problems, um, so there's a there's a um, there's a case called HM, uh, which is a famous case uh, of a person who had a bilateral surgery in his brain, and as a result, he was not able to learn new information. And largely, it was because he could only hold on to the present. He couldn't transfer information from working memory to long-term memory. You couldn't hold on to it, uh, consolidate it into long-term memory, we'd say, or stabilize it. When you get older, like my age, um, what happens is uh, your ability to use working memory becomes diminished, or at least statistically, people who are older, like over the age of 60, um, start having problems using working memory. And so what that means is you stop being able to hold on to the goals you thought you had when you started to do something like we were talking about this question and I forgot two parts of it. You know, that's a working memory problem right there. And I have to say that, you know, when I was 20, I probably would have remembered those three things and all the questions before. But now I have to like prompt you and get it back because, you know, it's fell out of working memory. Yeah. Oh gosh. I feel like this is bad news for me because me at 25, I would have done the same thing as, as you just did. So... 
yeah, got to get my uh, working memory sorted. <laughs> Thank you for answering those questions. Um, now we are moving on to the open mic where you can talk about anything that you're passionate about, um, however boring it might be, because it's not boring uh, as long as you are passionate about it. You have the floor. So I guess the thing that I feel most passionate about in, in terms of the kinds of things we're talking about are, is wise reasoning. So um, I mentioned that we just finished teaching a course called Understanding Practical Wisdom. And I, I also mentioned that um, we distinguish the difference between wisdom and cleverness and smartness. And you can sort of think about those, but people don't know like, do I have to be Yoda to be wise? You know, I, I'm not King Sil Solomon. I'm not going to be King Solomon. Um, if it were up to me, probably the baby would get cut in half in the King Solomon story. That would not be a good outcome. Um, when we teach this course, one of the things that we spend a lot of time thinking about is how to explain to people what wisdom is. So it's not just a superpower. Or it's not sort of something out of a movie or mythic or, or, or historical. And in that respect, we talk about the fact that we have to use working memory in some sense. We don't actually talk about it in the class directly that way, but we have to use working memory because what we are engaged in when we're engaged in wise reasoning is trying to come to a resolution about a conflict between values that we have. Um, one of the one of the in one of the papers that we read for the class, there's a there's an example, and the example is a friend of yours is getting married. Um, and she's trying on her dress and she asks you, you know, what do you think of the dress? And you kind of have two choices. You can be honest and tell her it really sucks and it's terrible. Or you can basically lie and say, you know, it's a great dress. And of course, they're both good things. Honesty is a virtue, um, but compassion and friendship and support of your friend is a virtue. This is a, you know, an example from Schwartz and Sharp in, in a chapter they wrote. And what's interesting is they talk about the fact that wise reasoning is necessary to sort of mitigate the conflict or to, to um, modulate the conflict be that be, uh, falls between those. What's interesting is that a colleague of mine in philosophy looked at that problem and immediately said it's a false dichotomy. That is, she came up with the wise answer right away. And I think that that is interesting. So a smart person might think, it's important to be honest or it's important to be compassionate and you're not going to find some middle ground and you stop thinking. A clever person might figure out a way to lie in such a way that they're not really lying, sort of like a half lie or something. Um, but what Candace Vogler, my colleague in philosophy said is, she's not asking about the dress. She's asking you, what do you think about her as a bride? How does she look as a bride? And your answer to her should be honest and compassionate and say, all brides are beautiful. Of course, you're going to be a beautiful bride. In other words, understanding what she's asking is not about the dress, but about something more important to her. And that's where wisdom comes in. Being able to sort of see through the surface structure of what's going on, not that you're necessarily guessing all the time what people are intending, but trying to be sensitive to what people's concerns are um, and responding to those. When students um, sort of talk about the kinds of things that they they think would be where wise reasoning would come to play, it's interesting to me that they come up with things like, 
wise investing. I want to be a wise investor. And I think that that's probably not an area, a domain for wisdom. Yeah, you can be sort of a green investor or you could be a religiously adherent investor, but you know what your goals are and you make your choices and you follow those. There's not really a conflict there. Um, but one of the students brought in an example that I was, uh, I was really interested in. He, he brought in this example of a basketball coach from Michigan State University. And the basketball coach from Michigan State University, and I guess this probably doesn't mean anything in Australia, but, um, but he was offered uh, a National Basketball Association job coaching for the Cleveland Cavaliers, which is like, you know, coaching for the best soccer team in the world or something. And it would be a multi-million dollar job compared to being a coach at a, at a college. Um, and he thought about it and he turned it down. And people were just totally shocked. Like, how do you turn down a prestigious, high paying job of, you know, basically this is the aspiration everyone has as a basketball coach. And he said two things. And the two things he said were, well, first off, as I walk through the town where Michigan State is, I see my boys all the time. He sees his basketball players and he sees them after they graduate and he knows how they've grown up and he's played a role in that. And so it's very important to him to be part of their personal development in the way that he sees his, his role as a basketball coach. But the other thing is his daughter said, you know, if we move to Cleveland and you're the Cavaliers basketball coach, people will want to be friends with me because of you. They won't be friends with me because of me. And she said, I want to be friends with people for myself. And so he heard those two things and that was important. So that's the kind of thing that I think we think about as a situation that calls for wise reasoning. When you're balancing sort of like your career and your advancement against your family and your social impact, those are places where I think wise reasoning comes to play. That story was very touching, and yeah, I am. I'm. I moved. <laughs> That's very inspiring, um, and I totally relate to the goal. Um, it's hard to make friends when you're that age, and it's so touching that the dad even took that into account. I don't know if my dad would have, to be honest. <laughs> like, I think my dad would have been like, "Well, shut it. I'm paying. I'm. I'm paying for the food. I'm feeding you." Like, just suck it up. <laughs> oh, I think that a lot of parents don't think about things that way. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's why I find it a striking example. But of course, one of the issues is you can't necessarily be, you can't, you can't make that adjudication. You can't make those decisions lightly. Mm -hmm. It's not like somebody says, hey, do you want to have this multimillion dollar job or, you know, stay home for another decade? And, you know, the knee-jerk response is going to be, yeah, I'll take the money until you start reflecting on the perspectives that other people have. So that's a key part of what wise reasoning requires. It requires you to think about other people, what other people need, how other people feel. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean you're necessarily going to, like, give up what you want for them. You might not. Mm -hmm. You know, you could, I don't know if you know about these large communities. They're these these places called large communities. Uh, it's a it's a French word, large, mm -hmm. and and <clears throat> uh, people who move into these communities need help in various ways, and then people join those communities to be the helpers, if you will. 
But one of the things that the people who, and, and the person who started was a very rich fellow, basically gave up his wealth to start these communities. But the thing that's important is when people sort of give up their everyday regular life and whatever job they have to work in a large community, they're giving up something, but they're gaining something. And I've heard some of the quotes from people who went to work in these communities, and they were things like, I thought I was giving up you know, my wealth to come to this community, but instead I learned that I have limitations, and I learned how to deal with my limitations and became a better person. So when you talk about personal development, making those kinds of stretches is one of the ways in which we learn about ourselves on the one hand, and we do it by taking the perspective of others. So Aristotle talked about eudaimonia, that practical wisdom, um, this kind of wise reasoning leads to eudaimonia, which is human flourishing. And people think about human flourishing as having more money, more chocolate, a better cake, good donuts, whatever, um, more friends. And instead, human flourishing is actually about personal development, about developing your ways of approaching problems that take into account other people, even when you think your choices may not involve them. Yeah, um, that sounds like a lot of, well, I I think I always thought of it as something that was like, a, like, obviously, you have to take other people into account. But I think as I grew up, and I got more friends in not got more friends in adults. It makes me sound like I didn't have friends when I was a teen, which is kind of true, but that's not what I meant. Um, as I made new friends in my adulthood, um, I noticed that sometimes some people don't necessarily do that. It's not like second nature to them. And I'm not saying that I'm wise or anything or use wise reasoning or anything like that. It's just like, I just always took other people in your account first and not in a, I don't mean to say this in like a self-righteous manner, but it's just like what I was taught to do. Um, but I noticed that not everyone does that. I thought it was just something that everyone did. Um, so that's really interesting. And maybe in the future, I'll do it with more like consciousness. Is it important? I don't know. <laughs> I think that's, yeah, that's all the questions that we have. Um, thank you so much, Howard, for joining us today. I learned so much from you and I had a couple good laughs. So that's <laughs> always really fun. Thank you so much, Howard, for joining us today. Uh, if our listeners want to find you, where can they go? Uh, well, thank you, Marie. Um, well, uh, you can find me at the Center for Practical Wisdom, which I'm the director of, um, which is um, a website uh, at the University of Chicago. And I'm in the Department of Psychology at the University of Chicago, so you can find me that way as well. And I do have a Twitter feed that I am now questioning whether I want to keep using uh, under the current regime, but probably you can find me that way too. Well, there's threads now, so you could probably jump on that bandwagon. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> at some point, maybe we'll see you there. Um, yeah. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you next episode. You've been listening to the Self-Improvement Atlas, the Personal Science Insights Podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. For more episodes like this from 10 different life management perspectives, 
search LMSL on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you can get updated on everything we have to offer. We have a wide range of topics readily available for you to check out. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it, and subscribing to our channel as it helps us grow and bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website at pe.lmsl.net where you can join our movement. I'm Marie Stella. Thanks for tuning in.